Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to be talking about Noam Chomsky's critique of French intellectuals. Now before jumping into this, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can go check out some 250 or more episodes I already have up. You can subscribe and see videos that are released every single week. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form if you just want the audio. If you found this on a podcast platform, you're going to be able to find the video on YouTube if you're interested in that at all. And you can see my Foucault shirt if you're interested in that at all. My beloved Foucault shirt that is admittedly too tight. I need a bigger one. Anyways, you can do all those things. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure to do that. And yeah, let's jump into Noam Chomsky's perception of French intellectuals. Now, I'm primarily primarily pulling from his many interviews that he's given over the years about French intellectuals, mostly about Michel Foucault. And what I'm going to do here is to recount what Chomsky has to say about them, and I'm just going to poke holes in things he has to say. And to be quite honest, as my shirt would suggest, I am on the side of French intellectuals. Now, with that being said, I think that there's a lot we can take from Chomsky's work. Chomsky's work is invaluable when it comes to understanding geopolitics, understanding the way that people's opinions about military operations overseas in the United States are manufactured, how they are coerced into believing certain things about the virtue of military operations, and, and that's just scratching the surface of where Chomsky is just is so valuable. But when it comes down to this, when it comes down to understanding what French intellectual life, in quotes, whatever that is, what it was all about, he falls flat. And it is a little embarrassing because it's so wrong at times, uh, not at, a, at the level of opinion, but at the level of fact. And I want my job here is to try to explain to you why exactly that is the case. Now, if you are interested in more stuff about French intellectual life, you can go check out so many episodes I've done on Michel Foucault, Jean Baudrillard, Gilles Deleuze, uh, Félix Guattari, um, and Lacan, so many others, if you're interested in that stuff and want to learn more. Now, one of Chomsky's primary ideas about French intellectuals is that in the early 70s, they underwent a kind of transformation from being Stalinists and Maoists to being simply moral relativists. And this is something we hear as well among certain charlatans like Jordan Peterson. They say things that like French philosophers were all hardcore communists. And then in 1974, when the Gulag Archipelago was translated into French, French, which is Solzhenitsyn's uh, very important text demonstrating the horrors of Soviet Russia. After that point, Chomsky suggests and Peterson, that the French intellectuals had to gather themselves, had to change their course of action to consider power instead of considering class, in shaping their project to be one of apparent moral relativism, which is, well, I'll get into that a little later, to change that to become more in line with a kind of nihilistic pessimism, which it's is a strange thing to suggest because it's difficult to understand how you can go from hardcore communism to not caring about anything at all and thinking nothing has any meaning. 
But that's the narrative. Now Solzhenitsyn's text, The Gulag Archipelago, was translated into French in 1974. One year before that, Jean Baudrillard released his book titled Le Miroir de la Production, which translates to The Mirror of Production, in which he lays out his pretty scathing criticism of Marx and Marxism. There's one cover of the book that has Marx on a cross being crucified. And the idea here is that Baudrillard was really developing his own way to criticize Marxism because he, was, he grew very much disillusioned with it. And he was disillusioned with it even before then. There wasn't this huge shift. And we can see the same kind of sentiment emerging in his collection of essays for a critique of the political economy of the sign that came a little bit earlier. Or parts of it were written earlier. Anyways. And before him, with Michel Foucault, who's often used as the figurehead of French intellectuals, he released his text Les Mots et les Choses, which is translated into English as The Order of Things in 1966. And in this book, there's a, there's a line that stuck with me when I first read it, that goes like verbatim, Marxism exists in the 19th century like a fish in water. It can't breathe anywhere else. And remind you, this is 1966, almost a decade before the Gulag Archipelago was released or translated into French. So clearly, within French intellectual life, there was criticism of Marxism before Solzhenitsyn's text, which should raise some alarm bells as to how French intellectuals are characterized as undergoing some kind of seismic shift in the early 70s as a result of these horrors of Soviet Russia coming to light. Now, he uses this point to make another broader point, that French intellectuals were all in some kind of cahoots simply by the fact that France, specifically Paris, was a very insular place where Parisians were not interested with anything that was going on philosophically, culturally, outside of Paris and outside of France. To which, this, this is something I hear and I'm, I think to myself, yes, 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 because we know Americans love other cultures and love to understand what goes on in other parts of the world. I mean, Baudrillard was translating German to French way before Chomsky was even writing. There was, Foucault was doing similar things. They were reading German, reading English. They were reading texts by people all over the world, trying to understand ideas coming from all over the world, be it the Vedic tradition, be it Chinese philosophy. These people were not just consuming French cultural and philosophical products. That, that It's just a strange, strange suggestion. Not to mention figures like Holem Balt, who was very much a, a precursor to the work of Jean Baudrillard, to the work of even Foucault. Roland Barthes was super critical, in much the same way that Chomsky was, of French foreign policy, specifically French occupation of Algeria, and the way that it sold the idea of colonization to the French people, to normalize it, to render it a mythical figure within that society, to leave little room to challenge it. And if you want more on that, I've also done texts I've covered Holland Balt's work a little bit. But the idea here is that there is quite a bit in line between these thinkers and Chomsky himself and Americans themselves. And it's strange to me that there's this idea that the French, more so than any other for some reason, 
were not interested in looking anywhere else other than their own culture. I mean, Nietzsche was probably the most significant influence on the entire French intellectual scene, more than Marx and Marxism. Nietzsche and, and, and others, Schopenhauer, very much Kant. These are figures who were very much influenced, who very much influenced French intellectual life. Which is something, again, I say that as though there's this homogenous figure of French intellectualism, but it doesn't exist. Between Baudrillard and Foucault are valleys of differences. Between Deleuze and Baudrillard, there's the same thing. Huge differences that cannot be ignored. They can't just be homogenized under the umbrella of French intellectual life, French intellectualism. Now, if we can look past all that, there are still many criticisms that Chomsky puts forward. One of them is that Michel Foucault, and he's really talking about all of them here, but he uses Foucault, he focuses on Foucault, to say that Foucault was a moral relativist. And I want to say as a side point that it's in the interview where he makes this claim, he also says that there's no such thing as a real moral relativist. And he uses an analogy to skepticism, how there aren't truly any real skeptics. Now, Anyone with a background in philosophy would know that skepticism is itself not a homogenous thing. Skepticism assumes many forms. There are true skeptics, but in any case, I mean, he just says things sometimes. But he makes the claim that even though there can't be more relativists, Foucault is an extreme moral relativist. And he takes this point to say that for Foucault, apparently, there's no reason to do anything. There's no real truth. There's no reason to fight power, I guess. There's no reason to get up in the morning because power will just determine how we can exist in the world. Now, I, this is probably the biggest misconception of Foucault's work that I come across fairly frequently in a broader criticism of quote-unquote postmodernism that happens all the time. And the idea is that in criticizing power in the way that Foucault does, so he takes aim at schools, he takes aim at science, he takes aim at political institutions, at prisons, at hospitals. And what he says is that these institutions work in such a way as to put together various ideas that the public can accept are normal, which is, I mean, that's totally fine. And all that Foucault does in his books, and this is why you have to go and read them, what he does is he looks at any kind of novel development, be it the way that discipline is organized in prisons or how hospitals are organized or, or clinics or schools. And what Foucault does is he looks at historical accounts, like real historical accounts written by people who live through these things, who are part of these systems, and he traces the ways that they developed. And his point is to say that there is a history here. These ideas, these ways of organizing people, these ways of understanding the body, of understanding healthcare, didn't just sprout up from nowhere. There is a history. And because there is a history, many of its roots can be traced back to previous ways of thinking about the world. So Foucault is trying to, in his projects, across all of his works, he's trying to understand what motivating factors contributed to these developments which he's quite clear about. He's not saying that they're like necessarily bad. He's, if anything, he'd say he has no idea. 
Instead, he's just demonstrating that there is a history, this history was pushed by various interests, and it potentially has this effect in how people are going to perceive themselves, each other, people in power. Are they going to be more willing to submit to power? How have these institutions emerged in such a way as to make power something a little bit more ubiquitous, which is to say a little bit more common, where it the very idea about power and organizing people is ingrained within these institutions that claim to be helping people. So hospitals claim to be helping people, giving people health care, which is fantastic. Foucault says, okay, well, wait, wait a second. How is the organization of the hospital in reducing patients to symptoms, maybe? How does that alienate people from themselves? How does it take away people from their communities? How does it make it so that people lose an attachment with each other? Now, these are some very cursory uh, observations about Foucault's work. And it's important to just take from this that Foucault is very much interested in challenging power, which is not something you could do if you were a moral relativist. And he does this primarily by just showing this history. So in that way, even though he's talking about how power can work to con you know, convince people that certain things are normal, that they should be believed, doesn't mean that he's prescribing this to say that the only way to think about the world is in accordance with the powers that be, because then Foucault himself couldn't exist. Because as Foucault is very clear, where there is power, there is resistance. And he's interested in those ways that people combat power, the ways that people want things to be better for themselves and for their communities, which is pretty far afield from thinking that they are moral relativists. Now, in an interesting logical turn of events, Chomsky says that, <laughs> that Foucault's moral relativism actually makes him a universalist, which is to say that because Foucault says that everything is relative, which he doesn't, but you know, this is what Chomsky says, then therefore by saying that, he is implying that that is a universal truth. Now he makes a broader claim here to say that humans have an innate capacity to infer moral judgment and moral values from our biological existence as human beings. So he says that because we as humans have the ability to transform scattered bits of data, so scattered bits of understandings about the world like language, as a kid, we only hear words, and from that, we are able to understand language. We aren't taught or sat down how to speak. You know, we just adopt it on our own. He takes that a step further to say that we then can have innate moral judgment, which we'll talk about a bit more as we go on. But the point he's saying is that even if you say that everything is relative, that implies that everybody still, in those settings, has that similar capacity to learn their own culture, to learn their own belief about power, about what is right and wrong, which signals a universal among them. Now, I don't think that Chomsky is fully aware of the philosophical implication of that comment, because that comment is very much a Hegelian one. We think here about the phenomenology of spirit, and without, getting too, without going too far down a Hegelian rabbit hole, the idea there is to understand, this is what Hegel does, that despite differences, we can find a commonality in these differences. The very fact of possible existences that is ushered in by spirit. Now Chomsky essentially is making the same point here, 
to say that despite these differences, they signal a universal commonality. But he doesn't actually say what these universals are. He doesn't actually lay out, because you might be able to say, sure, all humans have this similar capacity to learn language. And then he says, we are all therefore moral, which is a jump in itself. You can't comfortably make that leap, but he does it anyways. He doesn't actually say what the parameters of that morality is or are. He doesn't lay them out at all. Whereas you can lay out what language is, how is a language organized, how is a language going to be utilized. The same can't be said with moral judgments. And this is very much true if you look at different contexts in which people's moral understandings of the world and of human relations are entirely different. So in one interview, an interviewer asks him, well, how can he make sense of the fact that in some cultures, homosexuality is subjugated? Or in America, how 50 years earlier, homosexuality and, and uh, was subjugated, women were subjugated a century earlier, slavery was a thing, it was very much indoctrinated into law. How can we make sense of that? And Chomsky says to these criticisms that at that point in time, humans were not in compliance with their real value systems that come to them through their, the fact that they are biologically human. Again, he, isn't, he never says what these value systems actually look like, but he says that we've moved beyond that and he makes, makes some pretty egregious claims about the ways that women are no longer prosecuted or subjugated, gay people are no longer prosecuted, slavery has ended, things like that. He makes these types of claims where he says that now the West, all of these things are regarded as completely unacceptable, which is a pretty naive thing to say, especially when we consider the many political bills being passed in the United States that explicitly target gay and lesbian people, uh, not to mention trans, non-binary people, all of these things still very much exist. So I'm not sure what world he lives in to think that through time, civilization is just improving, which is a strange suggestion. And he makes another claim regarding slavery to say that and this is, this is a mysterious moment. He makes a claim that slave owners had a point in that one of their primary arguments was that industrialists in the North, in the Northern United States, were also participating in a kind of slavery because they were using wage labor. That was a, that was a deliberate pause. He equates slavery with wage labor to say that they are pretty much the same thing, which is a pretty Marxist, Stalinist statement, wouldn't you think? Anyways, the point for me there that I take from that is that Chomsky sees a certain value in criticizing things that might fit his narrative, whatever that might look like in that moment. And in doing so, he is able to put aside the many issues that will be raised as a result. So on the one hand, he wants to say that slavery has ended and that's a good thing. That is a sign that as a civilization, the quote unquote West has improved. It has gone in the right direction. But at the same time, he says that industrialists were as bad as slave owners and that hasn't gone away. So what's going on here? Like, is it that 
slavery has ended and things have gotten better? Or have they not gotten better because we still have wage labor, which he said was the same as slavery? And I'll put links for all of these interviews in the description so you can, you, you can know that I'm not just making this up. So he wants to have his cake and eat it too, in that he wants to demonstrate how Western civilization, quote unquote Western civilization, has improved, while also finding ways to criticize anyone else who criticizes it as having not improved. One of the other big ideas that comes out of Foucault's work is the idea of regi regimes of truth, which is to say, as I elucidated earlier, that power will determine what can be considered true, what can be considered normal and right, which is to me seems totally fair. And it's something that Chomsky reluctantly agrees with to say that this claim is a truism, that it's obvious, which is something he frequently does. He says that the postmodernists use polysyllabic language, which is to say that words with many syllables, big words, to say very simple things. But then he says that he doesn't understand what they're saying, and he says that what they're saying is wrong. So he says that they are truisms that are incomprehensible, but are right in their simplicity, which if you can follow that line of reasoning, it's, it's a tricky one, but you know, more power to you. Now, he says that of these regimes of truth, that power is going to determine what is true. He says that it's a truism and there's no point to it. And he goes on to say that he can definitely see that this is the case where there are military interests that are going to determine how people are going to understand military operations. Academic interests that are going to determine how science is going to be conducted. Political interests who are going to determine how science can be conducted. Economic, corporate interests that are going to sway science. Which, when he makes this claim, is very jarring because this is exactly what Foucault is suggesting in that there are these interests who are going to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is taken as true, what is not going to be taken as true, and it's important for us to unravel these. So he doesn't really understand how close he is to being aligned with these French intellectuals. And to kind of riff on that for a second, he says that these French intellectuals just wanted to sound like they had something important to say, so they adopted complicated language that made them difficult to understand, which is I think a fair criticism, I think that at times they use language that is stubbornly difficult. It makes it very hard for anyone to really start to read it, which doesn't mean that it's not comprehensible. It's just that it takes time to get into it, time that Chomsky is not interested in. And he says that he uses, they use complicated language to put forward grandiose, wacky theories but I don't, I don't know of any French intellectuals who put forward a wacky theory that like human capacities for language means they have innate moral judgments that they never actually sketch out or, or clarify. So I don't really know if Chomsky's the one to be saying these things about French intellectuals, but I mean, he never quotes them. He just, he just, says that they there's this French intellectual scene doing these things. Anyways, we just, that's, yeah. Now, finally, he says that these thinkers were anti-enlightenment. And he says that they are, because they're more relativists, they don't care in truth about truth, which couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, if we think of the enlightenment from the philosophical tradition, chances are many of us will first think of Kant 
as being a pretty significant figure in this question of what is enlightenment and what ushers in enlightenment. How do we actually identify a point in time when we are enlightened, when enlightenment has arrived? And Kant says that it is the end of self-imposed tutelage, which is to say that we stop submitting to authority without thinking about it. We just, you know, would submit to religious authority. One of the other examples is scientific authorities. We just submit to these people without thinking. Enlightenment is the point when we can start asking questions and assessing the merits of any single person's claims based off of our own history and our own knowledge of the world. So in that vein, whenever Foucault, Baudrillard, Deleuze, Guattari, uh, Derrida, any time that these thinkers are challenging power, they are existing right in line with Kant's vision of the Enlightenment as a challenging and self-imposed tutelage, which extends further to a pretty strange claim that Chomsky makes, that these thinkers weren't interested in activism. They were just interested in sitting in their comfortable chairs and philosophizing, putting forward wacky and comprehensible theories, which is totally wrong, and you can very much just Google why this is wrong. They participated in many kinds of, uh, many forms of activism. Guattari and Baudrillard were both present in the 68 debates, or debates, um, protests that happened all across France. Same with the others, like Sartre, uh, Foucault, Deleuze, and then there's a whole saga of Foucault in Iran participating in those protests, which is just, I mean, these are all just facts that for some reason have eluded Chomsky, perhaps willingly on his part, but in any case, they are the facts. And I thought that in the Age of Enlightenment, we wanted facts in the Age of Universals. Aren't facts the things we can't question? Which is just strange that he chooses to ignore them. In any case, I know I wasn't fair. I think that Chomsky offers us a lot. And I think like we have to keep reading Chomsky. It, 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 we depend on it. But with this thing, this part of his whatever his project is just totally off base uh, and i hope that i was able to you know show you why and that you agree but if you don't you can leave a comment i can pin comments that make me look silly and then everyone can laugh i'll laugh at myself it'll be a great time yeah on that note take care